Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 65th episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, did you know that law school is going to be a lot of work? <laughs> I, I have heard that. I have heard that. Yeah. I just finished orientation last week and... You know, in undergrad or things like that, you'll have like your introductory classes and your professors will hand out your syllabus in the class or whatever. Not in law school. I already have like dozens of cases I need to brief and go through and be prepared to present and be called upon in class on day one of class. So yay, Jeez. law school. <laughs> huh. That that does sound like a lot. Are you Are you excited at least? Uh, excited, nervous, terrified, <laughs> all, all, it's a whole range of, of emotions, you know, this sad sounds that like I don't before get to play as much flesh and blood. <laughs> excited, nervous, terrified. Yeah. Um, cause the whole Wolfpack's testing our sweet deck that we're going to win nationals with. And I'm just watching here and there. And I just haven't made a lot of time to just sit down and play a lot of matches of flesh and blood. It's, it's tragic. Yeah, the I don't know. I I hope I hope someone on the team wins nationals. I uh, I do think the deck we're working on is pretty cool. I'm excited to play it, but yeah. Oh, there seems to be fear and anxiety on the team deck now. I think people are jumping ship. People are like, "Oh no, I yeah. can't play this deck. I need to play another deck." And I'm like, "No, you fools! Our deck is our deck is so good." I just, I can't, but I can't show you it's, the way. I'm too busy in law school now. It's, it's just a travesty. <laughs> I think. So, one thing that I've noticed with internal testing in the Wolf Pack is it is very hard to have a very good win rate because you're testing against a lot of other very good players. So, it's very hard to be very confident because you're like not winning a lot of the time because everyone's very good. Yeah. So, for sure. It, it does make it tough. That and um, it's really hard, especially on our team of our size, to like not get like too, I guess, like um, self-contained, too echo chambery, um, because if we start with a build of a deck and then somebody reacts to our build of the deck and they start beating our build of the deck, but it's not necessarily tech that other people are on, then like we can start over preparing and putting cards on our sideboard that aren't really warranted. And I think a little of that has been going on, which is why this week I want to talk about sideboarding. Woo. Good transition. Yeah. So <laughs> first and foremost, um, let's start with like what are your just high level approaches to like building a sideboard in in your in your uh decks that you built? So I think the biggest thing is high level is I want to make sure that I have 60 cards that I can play into all the popular meta heroes that I am not embarrassed to put in my deck. And I also want to make sure I can present five pieces of equipment into every hero in the game that I'm not embarrassed to have in my deck. I guess six for some heroes, usually five, sometimes six. <laughs> some, I got some, some, one-handed weapons, some offhands going on, but for the most part, five. Okay. Um, All right, that makes sense to me uh, because equipment, if we want to start there as well, is going to be like the most foundational piece to most people's sideboarding, right? The go-to starting point is just like, well, just throw a couple pieces of Arcane Barrier 
you know, in your sideboard for the wizards or something like that, you know, just like, Oh, look at that. I fixed my Kato matchup. I have AB three. Can't, can't ever lose to Kano now. <laughs> and I think mm. looking back all the way back to when Icelander started becoming prominent, I think a lot of people carried over that expectation that, Oh, wizard need more arcane barrier before they realized the play pattern of like, Oh, AB one versus an ether ice fame and then pay two from cards in hand. Um, is really strong and then a lot of decks started adapting to just ab1 do you do you remember that like time and like kind of that evolution in sideboarding happening yeah i I think that happened around like everyone was playing ab3 when i went to uh nationals last year that's actually part of what led me to like scar for scar wounded bowl like the zero for three arcane spells like in case and ice bind were quite bad into opponents playing ab3 and because of that, it just seemed like it made more sense to just jam some physical attacks. And if they're going to play AB3 anyway, their armor is not blocking very well. <laughs> yeah, true. And especially with decks like Old Time floating around and Crown of Seeds at that time. So like, there's just a lot of ways to prevent the arcane damage um, that people were kind of expecting from that deck. And so pivoting away from that into, into a bull lander presenting more physical damage was obviously a really good call and won you a lot of tournaments. It, it did. <laughs> Um, but I guess like, do you think people underutilize like different equipment slots for different matchups? I guess like one thing that I commonly see is in longer matchups, people say, well, like, well, I know this game's going to go long. So like 10 plus turns. So I'm going to get, find I'll bring tunic in for this matchup. And if I know this is going to be a short game, I'm going to play something like, um, Heart and cross Either strap Iron or Weave or Heart and Cross Strap sure. or cards like that. Do you think not enough players or cyborgs consider like the length of the game when factoring in like the value they're going to get out of their equipment? Um, it's hard to say whether not enough do or the right amount do. I do think it is good and correct to do that. I think in like Ninja Mirrors, for example, you usually want Heart and Cross Strap over Tunic, or at least at least as Katsu, because like the turn you draw that Surging Strike. You need to go, and if you don't have a blue or, or you have to block with your blue, you really like the hard and cross strap gives a lot of value to that hand. And in a game that's going fifteen turns, yeah, tuna gives up enough or gives you enough value that it makes up for losing the hard and cross strap. But in a game that's likely to go five or six turns, you just really want the the two resources on your big turn. And I don't know if there's a lot of other great examples of that where it's like equipment that is very good in a short game versus equipment that's very good in a long game the other example that sticks out in my head is last meta when zach was testing viscera and alexi he actually started siding out grasp even though it's like a very good card and you can get a lot of value out of it in a long game by continually making the rune chance he started playing vexing quill hand instead because when he wanted that reduction or he wanted to give um swarming loom veil go again in that plus one he just had it at a moment's notice and he was giving up like the extreme amount of value you know grasp of the arknight's like one of the best equipment in the game just because he just needed that ability to go when you needed to go so i thought that was quite a interesting pivot as well at the time yeah it, it seemed kind of like his plan was i need to kill lexi in four turns or something and if you're trying to kill her in four turns it doesn't matter what you're it doesn't like you have to just take the damage and, and kill her if that's what your your plan is and i think it, it, it worked out really well for him he did beat a lot of lexi's doing that so for sure and then I guess the other advantage to maybe going a little bit heavier on equipment 
uh, versus cards and deck is when you are bringing in cyborg equipment, you know you're going to have access to that resource whenever you want it and and the game because your equipment obviously start and stay on the battlefield and you're going to be able to use it whenever the time comes up. But if you put in like something that's like a very specific tech card uh, in your deck, you're kind of at the mercy of it lining up well in a specific time interaction where it falls in your deck if you're only playing one copy. You know, infamously, we saw in the finals of you versus the fatigue old time, you know, he had the one tech card of the sideboard of the Imperial Ledger, and it just was in the last like 10, 15 cards of his deck. Or, or yeah, sorry, uh, Imperial Warhorn, uh, not Ledger. Two very different cards. Uh, <laughs> uh, but still, like, I guess that's kind of like the danger of putting in cute one of tech cards in your cyborg sometimes right yeah i i think also on top of that so equipment if it's in play you're always going to get full value out of it going from like a bad e- equipment that's bad in the matchup to an equipment that's good in the matchup it's probably worth like two three maybe even four or five points of value over the course of the matchup like every game you're always going to get that assuming that the equipment is a, a, a reasonable upgrade from what you would play otherwise in that specific matchup um then you're you're always getting that those points and then like for cards in your deck because of how modal cards are in flesh and blood where you can block with them you can pitch them you can play them every card has three modes i guess except like gorganian tome or cards that don't block where they only have a few modes or two two of those options available or wait i guess gorganian tome only has one but anyway (laughs) you can't pitch it or block with it but most cards you can do something with so if you have a blue that's pretty bad in the matchup maybe you'll find a window where you can pitch it for three points of value and that means like upgrading the blue that's bad in the matchup to a blue that's good in the matchup probably only going to net difference one point maybe zero if you end up just pitching the other blue anyway so using sideboard slots on cards and deck because every card does multiple things and even the cards that are weaker in the matchup you can use for a different purpose it means it's just like not that efficient to replace cards with other cards in most matchups. Like, yes, it is good. And you obviously don't want a sideboard of 20 equipment because there just aren't 20 equipment that you would feasibly want in pretty much any deck. But spending the slots on the equipment first is usually worth a lot of value. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I think after equipment, what I think you have some favorite cards you like to just kind of auto slot in a lot of the time in your sideboards, right? Maybe some generic four blocks. I wouldn't say auto slot in, but you have to have a pretty strong reason to not want sync below. It's just, it's just such a good card. That's so good in a lot of spots. We both put it as number one in the game when we did top 10 card list forever ago. And I think like not every deck wants three copies of sync below, but it is not a bad idea to start testing with three copies of sync below four matchups that have a lot of break points and on hits and you need to be defensive in. Yeah. Do you think there's more merit or do you think too many decks cyborg cards like Oasis respite then over sync below? Or do you think Oasis respite is still like underutilized in cyborgs at the moment? Because it still has all the utility into decks like Bravo um, and, um, decks that are presenting those big or azalea but you know there's other cards that are presenting preventing azalea from being good at the moment <laughs> but it also has so much equity into the wizards and a little bit into the room blades as well um 
I don't know, but you've traditionally been pretty against Oasis Respite, though. Yeah, it's a card I didn't realize how bad it was until I started learning Icelander. And I'm like, Icelander's so good at using resources at different times, and she just can frequently use resources. And then you draw Oasis Respite, and you don't have a good way to use it, and it's like, oh. And pitching a red to cast Oasis Respite, that's a two-card four, maybe a two-card five. That's not... That's not something I ever want to be using a deck slot on. Like, yes, sometimes you're going to two card four or two card five by using your cards inefficiently because that's how things line up. But I'm not putting a card in my deck where that's like it's reasonably expected to happen. Sure. Makes sense. So I think Oasis is quite bad. I think if you want sideboard slots for Kano, you probably should just find room for Spell Void. There's a lot of good Spell Void options. Um, and if you don't have good spell void options available, you can always play spell void one, the spell free equipment. Uh, and I think that is better for your win rate than slotting in Oasis. Yeah. In general. Particular like Oasis, I think the most tech that people want it for is to covering up or helping prevent damage from the um, Aether Wildfires from Kano, because obviously when you prevent damage there off Aether Wildfire, it carries over to preventing damage and all the future spells for the rest of the turn that Kano's trying to kill you with when he's going off. But particular for Icelander, since she already has so much disruption and natural arcane barrier, and makes it so that she doesn't need cards like Oasis Respite to cover up that otherwise uh, difficult to interact with damage that a lot of decks might otherwise struggle with. Um, so if like, you're a deck that doesn't have really good options for Arcane Barrier, I think that might lead you to maybe be slightly more interested in Oasis Respite, but I still think it's a tough sell given that it costs that one resource. Yeah, I think, I guess that was the biggest thing. At some point in testing Icelander versus Kano, I realized that if the Oasis was just another blue, my hands would be so much more flexible and I'd be preventing basically the same amount of damage because... If you have two cards in hand and they wildfire you, you can cast an Oasis in AB2 to cover up six damage. If you just have two blues in AB5, you can pitch five to or pitch two blues to AB5, and the two blues are way more flexible. And yeah, so I think Oasis is not great. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I, I, I do think there is also some relevance with covering up dominate effects because for defense reactions, they have to be in your arsenal to cover up dominate with. Oh, Defense reaction plus another card. And that is kind of a selling point of playing Oasis is if you hand have a hand of a, a three block plus Oasis, then you can block for seven with three cards. And three card blocking for seven is not good. But sometimes like if Azalea is dominating something that you need to cover up, then it can be nice there. But I just ultimately don't find it to be good enough to warrant sideboarding it. Yeah. I think the Guardians are pretty, I think, the best homes for Oasis. Obviously, Old Time didn't need it a lot of the time, but I think Bravo now, especially if you're playing effects like um, Rampart of the Ram's Head or um, Staunch Response already, you can have the ability to have that one floating resource a lot. And especially into, I, I especially was happy with Oasis into the Rune Blades while I was heavily testing Bravo because they're just kind of presenting this random chip arcane damage um, with like rune chance or bramble spark or things like that. 
And then you'll often have that one floating resource at the end, and you can just use Oasis Respite to cleanly cover up what's one card that cleans up an entire Rosetta Thorn swing. So mm-hmm. um, I think that's kind of a useful uh, application for it, but I think you have to kind of be planning to be very defensive against the Rune Blades and want to play a very long game where you're trying to mitigate as much damage as possible. So that's kind of a pretty niche way to handle that matchup, I would say. Yeah, I, I think Fatigue Oldheim was actually probably the best deck for Oasis where you you know that when you pitch a blue, you can activate Crown of Siege, you can activate Rampart of the Ram's Head, and then you can cast this Oasis. And that's spending two cards for six points of value, um, which is still just like at rate with two, three blocks, but it's more flexible in how you use it. You're getting your Crown of Siege filter. And if you're below on life, you get that one extra point from the Oasis. I usually prefer Sink Below's and Fate for Scenes because it's you can two card seven pretty easily with those without having to be below life. It's just a little worse for hitting breakpoints, maybe if the three block is worse than a crown and a shield for covering up damage. And then um, sometimes if you're playing Fatigue Old Time, you might already be maxed on Sync Below and Fate for Scenes and want more of these effects. And that's where Oasis kind of shines. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, and then I think there was a card that was popping up a lot last time that Icelander was popular. And now that Icelander is popular again, I haven't seen it pop up as much again and that's energy potion i know we were kind of advocates that like it's not the best uh use of cyborg slots and maybe it was starting to be over included but do you think it might be time for energy potion to maybe start creeping back into some lists here and there yeah i i do actually i do think energy potion is pretty good there are hands where you want to just play a one card hand or like maybe you do a go again attack and then like in the aggro deck specifically where you're threatening that snatch on hit. Icelander is kind of incentivized to hold cards back to cover up the snatch if you snatch and then you play an energy potion and suddenly Icelander is like, shoot, how do I use my four cards? I'm not very good at spending four cards. And I and that combined with like having the energy potion for either stopping an Aether Ice Vein on hit, uh, well, paying, paying for the Aether Ice Vein on hit, yeah, or playing it in response to a channel or ac- cracking it in response to a channel or a frostbite to get two resources to make sure you can still play your power turn when you draw your power turn. I think the card is relatively effective against Icelander, and you also just usually want more blues against Icelander because of how her deck functions. So, yeah, Energy Potion is definitely a solid choice there. We even saw it, I think, I think Craig Pollock was using it in the AGE Open in his Guardian deck as part of his fatigue plan against Icelander, where he'd set up these energy potions. And now if you Frost X combo, well, he just has six resources on demand to uh, crack the three energy potions, make six resources, use Crown of Seeds to clear all the Frostbites, and bam, didn't take any damage from the Frost X combo. So that's like more of a niche use, but it's definitely... uh, Energy potions are pretty good against Icelander. Yeah, and even when you're an aggressive deck or like a more mid-rangey deck and your deck's kind of built around really powerful one-off turns, uh, specifically, I remember playing them in Bolton pretty happily where without them, if you played a Blizzard when I was trying to do like a V of the Vanguard or some one of my powerful turns, I was just blown out dead, like just can't win. But if I have an energy potion sitting there, it really checks like those not only channel like frigid but also like those blizzard effects that could otherwise just end a turn on the spot you can just crack an energy push and be like okay here's your two resources and i can still pay through one frostbite just by hmm. yeah what 
One thing to be careful about with energy potion, though, is if the channel is already in play, it costs one to sacrifice the energy potion. So it's only netting one resource at that for point. For sure, for sure. Still, still a good card. Yeah. Um, and then I guess last classic sideboard thing everybody always talks about it. everybody thinks about it everybody says it poppers we gotta, gotta gotta make sure we have those six plus powered attacks to make sure that we can blow up those dragons and i guess maybe heralds if somehow that happens <laughs> maybe someday yeah pop- poppers are interesting there are a decent amount of six powered attacks that have use in other matchups like a lot of decks that need disruption can sideboard in command and conquer against decks that are either a vulnerable to command and conquer like uh, rangers or b just uh are very combo based and you just need that extra disruption and then it also doubles down as a as a popper so i think command and conquer is kind of like pretty pretty common um but yeah poppers are very good i think dromai has been tier one or up there for quite a while and making sure that you have some poppers to not just get over overwhelmed by dragons is very important. I guess, like, what do you think is, like, the right amount of poppers for a deck that, like, so Lexi traditionally, they can play something like, uh, what's that six-power arrow? It starts with a B, right? Battering, Battering bolt. bolt. I was like, it's not bolt and shot. That's the good one. Battering bolt. Um, do you think playing that card can wind up costing you more than not including it like i think sometimes decks are like oh i gotta have poppers and they can wind up going overboard with it where their deck is then like clunkier overall and then especially against a deck like redline dromai that's not even trying to play like a super long game just trying to get a lot of value with like zero for fours and like just use the dragons as value when they pop up do you think people kind of like overvalue poppers into dromai a little bit so it's it's kind of weird. I think that I'm going to take us back back to the past and talk about Prism, old Prism, a little bit. So against against old Prism, it was very common to want to sideboard in your poppers and bring in your command and conquers. But then sometimes they would just aura you, and they would just kill you with auras. And auras never they never turn on your poppers. Maybe they never even attack with something that gets popped, or they t- attack with uh, what's what's the one for seven called? Makes an aura. Uh, Fract- it's not fractal replication it's the other one. Oh, i know it it's, it's so good <laughs> how can we forget this one <laughs> it's been it's been too long prison's been dead for too long but anyway they they attack with uh they're just their auras they build up this aura game plan and you have these clunky th- two or three costs six or seven Mirage power attacks metamorph. yeah they they attack with no no poppable cards or just miraging metamorph and you're looking at these cards and you're like dang these cards suck uh, and then you have to just like spend two cards to send your popper at their aura and just slowly lose the game like that so against prism i think it was very common that people would make the mistake of sideboarding in too many poppers even if you only have like one or two then it's always going to be on prism's mind especially if it's a closed decklist tournament where you could just like play you could honestly play zero poppers some of the time and they'd still like have to respect poppers because if they do get popped, then they're just going to lose. So I think usually the answer was more than one, but I think people went overboard and sideboarded in too many poppers against the deck that ultimately wasn't really trying to play that game plan of just attacking with heralds. They really wanted to be doing the aura thing, and the aura thing was kind of stronger than this really vulnerable plan. But 
against Dromai, it's kind of different because Dromai, while she can play around poppers by sending, like you said, the red light version of Dromai where they have a lot of attacks, that deck still has like 20 to 30 dragons and all the dragons run into poppers. Um, not Mir- not Mirror Guy. He's pretty safe into a popper. Sure, sure. Mirror Guy doesn't run into poppers. All the other dragons run into poppers. Chromai kind of gives you a little bit of insurance where like if you have a big board, you can Chromai attack and then attack with the dragons afterwards, even if Chromai gets popped. But poppers are still really important against Dromai because they they kind of enter turn. There, there's a lot of value. And when you pop a dragon, let's say you pop, for example, an Asvalai, you're saving two life by blocking the Asvalai, and then you're also saving yourself from having to deal three damage to it. So that's like a, f- a one card five point swing, just popping an Asvalai. And the bigger dragons are even more impactful, popping a Kyloria or a Yenderai is usually worth much more than the five points of value you're getting from popping an Asvalai. And that's not even counting that you're ending their turn. So any other dragons they wanted to attack with now can't attack either. So it's it's usually a pretty big swing when you pop a dragon against Dromite. And Dromite can't really play in a way where she never runs into poppers. Even if she knows your deck's full of poppers, like like let's say Dromite versus the Guardians, usually the plan involves attacking a lot of dragons into poppers throughout the course of the game. Usually we've seen Ghostly Touch end up with like 15 counters on it before because that means she got popped 15 times. So even... Even in the matchups that Dromai is like, yes, you're always going to have a popper. I know this. She still ultimately has to send dragons into poppers, and that's part of her game plan. So poppers are definitely better against Dromai than they were against Prism, and you do want some poppers. But if you do have too much and your deck is too clunky, Dromai can also just kind of build up a board or find another way to beat you or build up a board and then play a lost in thought and then attack with all of her dragons. And if she's just building up dragons and not attacking you with them, which is very common against guardians, especially where you just build up dragons and they're not very good at clearing the dragons because they usually get to do one big thing every turn. Um, then that can lead to some awkward spots where basically if you're drawing a bunch of poppers and Dromai's not attacking with the dragons, now your deck's not, your deck doesn't run as smoothly as it would if you didn't have these poppers. If you draw a hand of two red poppers and two red other cards that are good in your deck, and Dromai just goes like, blaze headlong, make two, or not blaze headlong, like scar for a scar, rabble, then make two dragons, and then passes. Now your hand kind of sucks. Um, and that can happen a lot. And then the other side of that is, you talked about Lexi specifically. If you're playing Lexi into Dromai, if you're not playing against the more aggressive version of Dromai, they might just be trying to block block for the most part until they can find a Tumultai block and play Tumultai. And then if they're able to, if that's kind of the plan they're on, then the poppers aren't really going to help get through that because the poppers, you can attack with them, but they're usually less efficient than your arrows with pretty meaningful on hits and weaker than your natural go again arrows like Falcon Wing and Bolton Shot. So you can still attack with them, but if the Dromai is reasonably defensive, then they might just be blocking until they find Tumultai. And if they are able to cast a Tumultai and blow up your New Horizons, all the poppers in the world aren't going to save you. You're in a lot of trouble without New Horizons in that matchup. That's fair. Um, and then I guess while we're talking about poppers, then there are, are kind of cards people sometimes play that they just will try to gain a lot of equity into very specific matchups um they're very specific they're very targeted cyborg cards if they're a matchup that they really struggle into um 
like Lexi can play Codex of Inertia if they're really worried about like their Icelander matchup, for example, and they really want to gain a lot of equity there. Taking Icelander off of Arsenal is like really important. Um, we saw things like, you know, classic Prism. People will play things like Lead the Charge in their decks in order to make sure that they could get multiple action points to clear auras. Um, what do you think about like very specific tech cards in Cyborg? Yeah, when when a hero is very clear they're going to be a big part of the metagame, or if it's a matchup that is shifted a lot by including this one card, for example, like the the Fatigue Oldheims playing Warhorn versus not playing Warhorn, that's one slot that gives you a lot more equity into Icelander than you'd have without it. I think spending spending the slot to significantly shift the matchup or shift the matchup is going to be pretty common by a few percentage points is definitely definitely worthwhile, especially if you're not looking for subword slots elsewhere. I think uh, the most common example of this right now in the metagame is Down and Dirty. It's basically only there for Dromai. It's a popper that you can put in your arsenal and then pop from your arsenal, which is very good against Dromai. And I I think that's the card that's like very specifically for one matchup, though I guess you probably would also play it into Prism. I think it's warranted by the fact that Dromai is one of the more common and stronger decks in the metagame. So playing a specific hate card that gives you a decent amount of percentage points in the matchup makes sense similarly when prism was running rampant forever ago i think playing some copies of lead the charge was very worthwhile because you'd expect to play against prism a decent amount and playing some copies of that card could significantly shift the matchup in your favor or make it a lot better than it was yeah so I generally tend to stay away from these types of cards. I think it takes a lot to convince me to play something like a Down and Dirty or a card that I know I'm only going to bring into one specific matchup. And the reason I am so hesitant to do that is because let's say Down and Dirty gives you like an extra 5% equity into this one specific matchup. Like it takes your win rate from like 55 to 60%. Whereas you can use that slot that gives you an extra 2% equity in like three matchups. So then you're increasing your win rate by 6% overall by pivoting away from that one card for a specific matchup and then having a higher win rate in more across the board. And that's what I think of whenever I'm putting a card in my sideboard. I really want to think like, okay, I go through and I look at like the matchups. What's my sideboard plan? What matchups am I using this card in? Can I use it for another matchup? Is there some hidden equity or some nice thing about this card that I could apply from like, I guess maybe even like Down and Dirty, maybe you could use it as like this bad defense reaction against Bravo if you were something interested in something like that, even like hypothetically. And I guess like whenever somebody is like, I want to put in this one thing that does one very specific thing, especially at a very specific like timing interval. So that was also why you never saw me, even in my build of old time. Like, I, I don't think I would ever put like Imperial Warhorn in my old time deck because. I also alluded to this at the beginning. When you put in specific tech cards, you also are counting on them lining up at the right time. And Down and Dirty solves a lot of that against Dromai, where you know if they're presenting a bunch of zero for fours and you draw like a three popper hand, you just draw like three command and conquers in the same hand. Like you just can't do anything with that hand. And that's what I was saying that could get kind of clunky. And I think more decks would be better by finding more proactive strategies into matchups as opposed to reactive strategies. And um, 
I think that just leads to better deck building design overall. And I think that's kind of what the nice thing about energy potion is as well, is that it is not, it, it sits on the battlefield. So if you want to use it reactive for um, like playing for an Aether Ice Vein or Blizzard or something like that, it fills that role. But if you want to do it for something proactive, like against Bull Lander, when I was playing Energy Potion as Bolton, sometimes I would crack it and just play um, a Soul Shield just because you just need that card and you can only have so many cards you can cut. But the fact that it just gave you those two resources and you can play a card off of it, you can crack it and play a V the Vanguard. You can crack it if you want to do like a more combo-oriented thing and then not have to worry about pitching things. Like It fills a lot of different roles, even though you know, it's primarily there for this one matchup, this one interaction. The fact that it can have more utility and do other things is like something I really value when I'm thinking about cards in my deck. Yeah, I, I agree with that a lot. I think going back to your first point about um, being 5% against Dromai or 2% increased against three other matchups, you also kind of have to weigh that by how much you expect the field to be. If the field's going to be like 50% Dromai, then like you should take the 5% in a Dromai card because yeah, it's yeah. just showing up. So that's a little bit more complicated. Yeah, but, right. but yeah, I think I think that is a good way to look at it. If you can get a decent chunk against one deck or you can get a smaller chunk against several decks, it's probably a lot of the time it is better to take the smaller increase against several decks. But you also have to be careful because you don't want cards you you, you want to be careful about oversideboarding. boarding if you have a bunch of cards that help a little bit against a lot of different matchups if you're boarding all these different cards in that help a little bit against all these other matchups you actually might be making your deck worse because you're taking away from like the linear game plan of it and making it just less consistent overall with all these weird cards that are supposed to increase the matchup but when you draw too many of them maybe they're just like actively detrimental together yeah but i think that comes down to then understanding the tenets of your main deck at that point then as well and whenever i'm building a deck i don't build a 60 card main deck or at least i don't consider like the the main chunk of cards to be like 60 cards at any given point of time i want to build somewhere between 45 to 55 cards that offer me like one really powerful cohesive strategy and then from there maybe i can trim a card or two out of that really powerful cohesive strategy if i really want some like really heavy swing sideboard cards but then i just add value to the matchup through the additional sideboard cards while i'm still maintaining like the really powerful core i'm not i'm never considering like like against uh, like if I'm a room blade or something like that, like I never want to be taking out cards that would enable me to play that attack and not attack action in a turn just to bring in like a lot more powerful non-attack actions in a matchup. Like you want to make sure that you're maintaining that ratio when you're a room blade or something like that. Um, it's just really making sure that you understand the core tenets of your deck when you're sideboarding as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think that is a very common thing that people do where they like like this is my 60 card main deck and these are my sideboard cards and then when i'm bringing cards and i need to swap cards out but i think that's not I, th I think it's a much better way to look at it being like okay these are the 20 20 to 30 cards i'm playing every time these are the 10 to 20 cards i'm playing most of the time and these are the other 20 cards that i'm swapping in and out a lot and i think that's usually how i i look at my decks and even then, I don't really like acknowledge the difference between the cards I'm never cutting and the cards I'm not cutting that often. It's just like when you play with the cards, you you find that out. So like when I was playing Bolander a lot, I lumped all the attacks in like the the never cut category, and then I realized that's not true. I actually cut scars against the other wizards because you're ahead so often, and you don't want. <laughs> Uh, Wounded Bull against Briar because she's good at blocking. Yeah, I, I think I was, I don't remember if I was cutting it or trimming it at the end, but I was definitely not playing three copies into Briar at the end. 
or at like worlds. Um, yeah, that was the biggest one I remember. Mm-hmm. So, and th- these are cards that I like was like, no, I'm never cutting these cards. They're so good. And then like, I'm like, actually in this one situation, I do want to cut this card. <laughs> so exactly, exactly. And if you look at your deck as like 45 to 50 card main board, then like you won't, you might miss those spots where you should cut the, that one card that's part of your, your main deck in the matchup that actually it's like better to cut that card than one of your other cards. Yeah. And then I think there's a component to flesh and blood that is kind of lacking at the moment. And it's a shame because I think it's one of the more interesting things about the game. And that's the fact that, you know, you're sideboarding before you play a game. So you have to be dialed into the meta usually to understand what the most popular decks of a particular hero are doing, what their builds are like, why you're boarding and the cards you're wanting to do, because you expect the matchup to play a certain way in advance. You're making your sideboarding decisions like way in advance and that's why you know you and I had so much equity over that Bolander weekend a year ago now, because people were expecting Icelander to play one way, and then we were just going like, yeah, yeah, but we're going to play this way. And uh, I just think like it's a shame that there's not more decks that have that kind of like dichotomy between their build. There's usually in the meta like a stock way to build the deck. And then that's just kind of like it. It's just people determine like, well, this is just the most optimal way to be doing this. So I'm going to be doing that. And there was a lot of good opportunity there for, especially the Tales of Aria heroes. Cause you know, they were both, you know, lightning and ice, lightning and earth, earth and ice. So like there should have been like multiple different ways for these decks to present themselves. And we saw that a little bit with lightning Lexi versus like ice Lexi. I think that's kind of like the most prominent one, but Still, at the end of the day, I think most heroes just kind of homogenize, and it would be a lot more interesting in Flesh and Blood, I think, if there were just, like, even if there were just different, like, ways for your deck to, like, cyborg into, like, the same matchup differently. I don't know. Do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I do really like when heroes have, like, multiple approaches that they can take two matchups, and, like, you have to, like, or, like, you can, like, kind of catch your opponent off guard. I know at PT1 that after Starvo got uh, autumn's touch ban we were like well def- i was like kind of like well defensive starvo's dead autumn's touch is gone How- you, c- you can't really do it anymore but defensive starvo is still a real deck that you could bring and they kind of catch people off guard by playing the more defensive version of the deck um oldheim kind of also had that it's not like whether he's ice or earth it was whether he was going to try to fatigue you by threatening disruptive on hits or if he was just going to like full block fatigue and just like not really have much pressure at all or just play defensively and say you have to beat this and I, I don't know if that's my favorite way to have the split of just fatiguing versus attacking, sure, but yeah, yeah. I think it does lead to very interesting spots. I think Bolton also has this going a lot. When you sit down from against the Bolton, if you don't know whether they're on Sabres or Raiden, then it's hard to board correctly because the things that are good against Sabres aren't necessarily good against Raiden. You want like offensive disruption against sabers and you don't really want very many of the defensive cards like the defense reactions can really clunk up your hands against sabers where you're like they're like block with three cards play my what's the what's the new card called v of valor v for valor and then you're looking at mm-hmm. your sink blow and in the next hand you draw a fate proceed and you're like oh no yeah for sure so um it's just a shame that uh overall i think there are some cards that are just ubiquitously good against both those strategies, things like the Disrupt Arsenal a bunch. So Command and Conquer classically, obviously very good if they're trying to set up on these uh, like core cards that help them have these pivot turns, um, channel like Frigid or these disruptive effects. Um, 
frailty tokens are good against both versions. Like there are a lot of cards that do overlap between both strategies, but you're right. Not every card does overlap between those two strategies. Mm -hmm. And I do think that there are, there are a decent amount of heroes that do things like that too. Like we, we talked about the curve with Icelander or the switch, the like switching to physical attacks with Icelander. And now like Icelander is like, every time you sit across from an Icelander, you're like, Man, if this is all arcane Icelander, I would board differently than if I knew it was all, if if I knew it was attack Icelander. And that's that's a pretty cool part of the game. It does mean that like if you don't have your your pulse on the meta game, their finger on the pulse of the meta, I don't I don't know what the phrase is. If you don't, it, it makes it kind of hard to do well in an event if you aren't kind of aware of what's going on or aren't following like the the metagame because like you have to sideboard without any information other than what your what hero your opponent's playing so you do kind of need that knowledge of what different heroes are trying to do it's not like like we played magic before where magic you get your you get to play your game one if you know what they were doing or don't know what they're doing it might influence some of your plays you make during the game but post sideboard you have a pretty good idea of what their deck looks like and flesh and blood's very different from that yeah absolutely and then um Sometimes people will say things like, well, in top eight, they'll just know this thing. And then my strategy loses so much equity. And I never care about that argument. If I'm on top eight, that's fine. Okay. I, I did it. I did the thing. Like I'm already a very happy person. And I think them also knowing the information is worth some amount, but them actually understanding the play patterns is worth uh, uh, another like really decent like equity. And I think very classically, when you top aided your nationals event with Bullander, you played against an Oldheim and he presented like a bunch of armor into you, but he didn't understand that he should use all of the armor kind of aggressively because you don't have any on hits. Just use the armor, get your value out of it when the attacks present themselves. I think he ended the game with like two or three block value in armor, like just face up. And I think when you're presenting novel strategies or different takes, even if your opponent knows the information, the flesh and blood is so complicated and like the play patterns can be so nuanced that it's still really challenging for your opponents to make the correct decisions when playing into it. Yeah, I I know another example of this is day two of Indianapolis this year. I played against Charles Dunn in the Swiss and I knew he was on fatigue all time. I knew he was going to attempt to fatigue me. I knew he had Warhorn. Um, I still played that that game horribly. I learned a lot in by playing him in Swiss, and it helped in the top eight. But uh, I, d- I did basically know most of his deck before that point. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, any final thoughts about sideboarding, though? Before we wrap things up, buddy. I feel like we covered everything that I wanted to talk about. So, I think. Okay. Cool. Well. The next time that you're putting cyborg cards in your cyborg and you're cyborging correctly for your cyborg matchups, always remember mind your manners. Thanks for watching.